0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. I shall translate that. Just basically, great gratitude to uh, respect, admiration for the Buddha, the historical awakened one, his teachings, the liberating teachings, and those who have dedicated their lives and benefited by them. I offer my deepest respects and gratitude to. Um, Can we turn this up? Yeah. Huh? Oh, the things behind it. Okay. We'll see about my sound karma. Uh, could we just a little more? That's not Pavro's specialty, turning up um, amplifiers. <laughs> he has a doctorate in religious studies, which doesn't always make you the best amplifier turner up. <laughs> but I shall can keep babbling away here until we get the sound up to the right level. <laughs> Am I there yet? No, not quite. I still think it should be louder. Oh, turn turned all the knobs. Okay. <clears throat> See what I mean by PhDs, you know? Okay. Technical expertise. Um, how is this? <laughs> okay. Okay. Enough knobs then. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Did you find anybody under there? (laughs) Good. Um, I understand also tonight that Matthew... This is a very uh, cornucopia of Buddhist monastics visiting Vancouver. Vancouver is becoming a hotbed of of Dhamma. I have Ayame Adanandi here who will soon be giving some talks as well and retreats and... Matthew Ricard, are you familiar with this name? He, I, I believe he's speaking tonight as well. And I thought well, I'd have some serious competition. He's very famous. He's known as the happiest man in the world. I am ranked number 56. Ajahn Brahm is known as the funniest monk. I'm ranked number 13. So. This is a strange topic for me. I usually wing it and give an improv um, dhamma talks. I never know what, what I'm going to say until I've said it. And this topic tonight is, you would think I wouldn't have to prepare for it. It's about my life for the last 20 years. So if I don't know about it, who does? Um, but I found I had to, because the the actual the topic, the contents are so voluminous. There are endless stories, endless It's quite an adventure to have been a Buddhist monk for 20 years. Not quite 20 years. The way they number the the seniority of a Buddhist monk is by rainy seasons. And so we keep that tradition. So I haven't quite made it to 20 full years, but 20 rains, 20 rainy seasons have passed. This is the tradition right from the time of the Buddha. However, 20 rains is certainly enough time to have gone through a number of experiences. I think I won't merely talk about those 20 years. I will probably have to start a little bit before that. One of the questions I'm often asked, aside from why do I shave my head, which uh, I'm resigned to answering uh, for the rest of my life, uh, or why do monks shave their head, I'm asked often, why did you become a monk? So I think it's a good place to start. I'm not sure at the end that you will be satisfied with the answer, but that's half the fun. Of course, this kind of becoming a Buddhist monk, especially in the West, coming from a middle-class Canadian family who have no uh, Buddhist connections particularly, it may seem rather strange that one would become a monk, and it caused for explanation. From the Buddhist point of view, this life that we're living now, we cannot explain exactly who we are. Now, Western psychotherapy, Western psychiatry, and uh, biology usually tries to figure out a person on a couple of factors. One is your genetic structure, and then secondly, your influences from this life. And so, I find that both my genetic structure, since I don't have any Buddhist genes in my family. And uh, I don't have any Buddhists in my family. The Western attempt to explain why an individual is the way they are is woefully inadequate. So, only from the Buddhist perspective, it makes perfect sense that at somewhere along the line I've had, in past lives, deep connections with this, the Buddha, the Dhamma, then Sangha. Many of you may not may have some doubts about the possibilities of having lived before entirely understandable, coming from the culture, etc. However, it is is curious how one seems to find oneself in such a culturally different lifestyle and to feel utterly at home in it, that it fits like a glove. So, I can find no better explanation. Now, I won't go into what happened 400 lifetimes ago, how it started. It would be a bit of a tedious evening. I do want to mention though, and this may resonate with members of the audience, I think people have interesting, sponta- apparently spontaneous events, realizations in their life, which they may ponder for the rest of their life. It may all be very difficult to explain to anybody. Sometimes you share it with certain friends, or, and this has to do with perhaps spiritual experiences. And it's even peculiar to frame it as a spiritual experience. Often when you have something like this, you don't even... uh, The context of spiritual or psychological or anything is not necessarily help you explain it. But I had something like this happen to me when I was about 15. And uh, I've never shared it much, I mean I mentioned it, but I just think it's kind of interesting. And again, even tonight I'm sure I will utterly fail to express what I understood. And I was, uh, you know, a kid in high school, and just, I think I was on, I might have been on my lunch break or just after school, just standing in a park by a lake, nobody with me at the time, and perhaps just gazing out at the water, and, you know, appreciating just being away from the school, you know, all of that. And perhaps my mind was in a tranquil or contemplative or open kind of mood, but I I suddenly realized something. It was a very, not an idea type of realization, a very kind of direct, a kind of revelation about the truth of life. And it was, um, the summary of it is that what I suddenly realized is that people are walking around and inventing stories about life. When you actually just look at them, including myself, what they're actually doing, if you could just film them without sound, you would just see that they walk, they sit, they lie down, they stretch, they eat, etc. But from the inside, being a human from the inside, that doesn't seem to be an adequate description of your life. There's this huge drama going on. Now, it suddenly hit me that that's exactly what it is and all it is. That it's not really the truth of the way things are, but that it's a fabulous story that is being told, habitually told, and that people are plunged into the story of their lives, the story of a person living a life, this character. I realized really that it's a a story about a character And I realized also that this character doesn't really exist. This character is a fabrication. This one we refer to as me or Bob or Tom at the time, is really a construct of imagination. And that struck me as such a remarkable insight. It was liberating in a strange way. Now, if you hear the story, you may not find it all liberating, but the effect on me was an astonishing kind of freedom comes out of that. You know, that's the kind of thing that maybe 15-year-olds think from time to time, and perhaps even some of you have thought from time to time. But it was something that I really couldn't process too well. I wondered afterwards what that was, what that insight was, and whether anybody else had thought of this, or, or whether many had, or what it was, I even asked myself, I wonder if I just had a religious experience. Because I was not religious. I mean, I didn't go to church or anything like that. But I wondered, I asked myself, was this a religious experience? I thought, my only contest for religion was really Christianity. So I thought, well, is that what, you know, did Jesus appear or anything? It had nothing to do with Jesus. It had nothing to do with heaven or God or any of those things. But it was very liberating. And it seemed to be a very deep truth. That there was a huge kind of given process that you're completely immersed in, involved in. And that is this utterly believed immersion into a, a kind of a play. And I somehow, spontaneously, had just kind of got my head up of the water of this thing for a while. I even think I shared it with a few of my uncomprehending fellow 15-year-olds <laughs> who had various Yes, I I see. (laughs) Yeah, right on. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I didn't realize that it was incommunicable, that the experience is not communicable by ideas and so forth, but I thought I would throw it out there as a kind of a spontaneous uh, something or other that never really went away. In fact, I puzzled about it for some years, never had a context for it. Went on to inquire. It seemed to me that the contents of that were kind of self-verifiable. It wasn't a matter of guessing or faith or anything. It was just kind of direct experience. And it was quite liberating and giving me a sense of detachment or equanimity from the drama. Now, what happens with these kind of things, unless you practice them a lot and then have a lot of support for them, quite often they can they affect you, but they, they cannot always be deep enough to shape your real, all-continuous experience. Something went on there. And then I went off to... uh, Eventually, I went to university, not too many years later, but three years later, and uh, I was still curious about what this was all about and the meaning of things. So I went into uh, philosophy. I thought... I hoped, although I did have some doubts about the matter, that somebody there at the university might really actually have some of the answers to the meaning of life. So I went. It wasn't too long until I found out wrong. Um, more or less that I discovered in academic philosophy and in literature, etc., those parts of... It never occurred to me to study science because I already knew at the right age of 15 that it had nothing to tell me. By the way, that's uh, the same conclusion that many philosophers have come to, Socrates included. It took him till he was 29 to figure that out. He said at first he inquired into the meaning of life through science or with natural philosophy, etc., the uh, inquiry, and she yet finally realized it doesn't go anywhere, it's not going to answer the deeper question, so we abandon it. I always intuitively felt that nothing that I could learn in the, what we would call science could possibly address the deeper issues of existence. But I hoped that maybe philosophy could. It turns out that um, and they're not really the professors of philosophy are not really professors of philosophy. They're historians of philosophy and uh, et cetera. So I decided that uh, since this quest, this needing to find out something would not cease, that didn't matter what I did, that would go on as well. So I decided to go into music uh, as a kind of a livelihood or a training or something. I feel at least one thing occurred to me And that has something to do with being a Buddhist monk. I remember this very clearly. thinking about how to make a living or how to get along in life. And I thought, well, music is harmless. And that's interesting, you know? Choosing a a way of life just because it's harmless. (laughs) At least it's harmless. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I went into it. And uh, so I think I benefited somewhat from these uh, Study. I didn't start, of course, at that age uh, in music. I had a lot of years, even as a child, involved in music. And one thing is sort of similar to the spiritual life. Music, or at least especially a uh, disciplined uh, approach to music, classical music and jazz and things that require a lot of uh, uh, complexity and study and development and so forth, helped me in many ways uh, becoming a monk. Because I spent many, many, many hours, hundreds, thousands, thousands of hours alone in a practice room and uh, when it came time to be a buddhist monk uh, the idea of going alone to your practice room was far from a foreign idea to me i was endeavoring in different ways but was also the very clear realization that in order to play the music you have to practice and there's a lot of practice and it's not all just truth beauty goodness but there are also scales <laughs> and uh, if you don't do the scales your capacity to Express and develop this truth, goody, beauty, and goodness is can be somewhat limited. So I proceeded on. I think that somewhere in me, though, this kind of these seeds which sprouted in a, you know spontaneously at fifteen are a little, just a little blip from the some sort of past life process that is just coming up spontaneously, given the right situation. Notice the the situation. Is in nature by a a placid body of water and alone. And those are some of the ingredients, a low sensory, alone, undistracted situation, uh, which allows some sort of insight to float to the surface. So I um, went on to... uh, let this kind of counterbalance my life as an urban classical musician, you know, living in the midst of arts and so forth, I felt, again, some sort of need for this peace and quiet. So I ended up finding a friend who is uh, also a rather unlikely philosopher. He was a graduate of physics, physics engineering. He was just starting a computer company. This is back in the 70s. But for some reason, both of us, had this great craving to go off into the middle of nowhere and um, wander around for days or even weeks on end in Ontario in the winter. So, we did. And that process of wandering around and, in fact, discovering something, one is the weight of what you think you need to go camping was a profound lesson was just that all of the things that you need and why you need them etc came under question as you had to carry them and uh, this was a great learning experience it took years to find out what is enough not too little not too much i in a some kind of kind of crank down way the experience was parallel to the buddha's experience of taking off in the middle of the night at the age of 29, having just had his first child from a palace, which he was about to inherit as a prince, ultimately to become a king, and then finding something in him that was, again, questioning the reality of the play he was living in. He was a questioner of the drama, and um, he found it to be that. So he went over the wall and went to one extreme, that is, in attempting to find out, he went to the ascetic extreme, and then found himself back to the middle way, and shortly after that attained a deep awakening. I lived a kind of a mini parallel in trying to reduce the burdens of simply being out there and wandering around. I, we got it down finer and finer and finer. I remember one night going too far. Um, It was a a nice November night, now think Ontario, mid-November, and think of two men walking around in just the clothes on their back, and some bread in their pockets, and a plastic see-through raincoat from Honest Ed's. (laughs) And we did have a little foam pad as well, no tents, no sleeping bags, no nothing, and we had got it to this point. So, after walking a long ways out in the forest, we lay down to sleep on the ground, on our backs, and it snowed all night. (laughs) You know, I had to wake up every 30 minutes to shake the snow off my plastic see-through raincoat. I was wearing a down jacket underneath it and a garbage bag against my skin. Various brilliant um, attempts to make a vapor barrier. So anyway, when we woke up, we both had frozen feet and a few other things, and it took us about 20 miles to get the blood circulating again, and then we realized we had gone too far. But it was a great realization to say, you know, we're discovering something. You have to go kind of too far in order to come find your way back. You See, when we started, we had, again, a winter camping trip where we had to haul toboggans full of goods behind us. <laughs> And these not only carrying heavy, heavy clothing and hauling toboggans, which we managed to make about three miles the first day before we set up camp, 40 below zero, put up a 15-pound tent. <laughs> then we proceeded to... We had brought a lot of food along, but we needed a fire. I took the axe. We carried an axe in those days, took one swing. The head flew off into the snow and disappeared. (laughs) That's all right. We had a backup. We had a full two-burner Bunsen pump-up stove. We proceeded to that. It didn't work at 40 below zero. It's all right. We were carrying filet mignon as well. That's for... (laughs) to eat. Frozen pucks, unbelievably close to a hockey puck, wrapped in bacon. Uh, thinking that this is what you needed as nutrition for a winter camping trip in Ontario. And we proceeded, then we had sterno, see three, a level of three. So a uh, first, a fire, the axe, axe head disappears, never to be found again. Two burner Bunsen doesn't work, and the sterno, of course, not even adequate to heat the water for this huge amount of hot chocolate we had. <laughs> So, a huge amount of gourmet frozen food, <laughs> totally unedible. So, we just ate as much snow as we could and tried to get some sleep. My friend, wearing enormous amounts of clothing against the clothes, sweated, had to, sweated hugely, and was versed in the idea that you had to change your clothes. So, we also had a pump up lantern glowing extremely brightly and dangerously in the tent. Attempting to change his clothes at 40 below zero, knocked the lantern down and set everything on a fire. (laughs) Uh, It wasn't total tragedy. We did put it out in the darkness, smelling of kerosene and shards of glass all over the place. We proceeded to try to sleep through the night. And so we learned a big lesson from this. It's a complete... None of this stuff worked. We were way vastly overburdened. It was a complete tragedy. And uh, so that's the tragedy of indulgence over indulgence and the burdens that come with it and then getting it down to having nothing and certainly being no less comfortable with nothing but neither of them being satisfactory. So finding my way towards a middle path. I also found my way into, uh, at this point, uh, into formal meditation. I began actually with the Tibetan group and um, I meditated, but without the slightest effect. I really didn't know anything about it. I did it. I had no idea that it would have any effect. But it seemed to be percolating somehow. So I was changing, and I wasn't even sure I proved the changes. I had changes of view about things, about, again, the emergence of this kind of original glimpse that I had when I was a teenager, that it's all just a story, isn't it? And people get awfully serious about it. And in a sense, that's why they suffer. And there's a little part of me that just, in the midst of the drama, I must admit, you know, getting into the dramas as well, the melodrama, but some little voice inside me saying that, you know, this is just a story. So, but without the training, without serious training and support for that view, it's hard to keep it afloat. So... But certainly this trying to just understand what you need helped me. Because when I came back from all these camping trips and I found my my house to be full of this and that, I realized I just don't need all this stuff. And why do I need it, etc.? So everything got questioned, every aspect of my life. Finally, I made it to a Zen monastery. And uh, I began to practice there. Again, as I sat down and meditated, I didn't experience any immediate sort of wonderful anything, just struggle with the mind. One day I showed up early though, and a yoga class was in progress. One of the Zen nuns was teaching yoga, she'd been a yoga teacher. so I just joined in, it went on for about 40 minutes, and then I sat down to meditate. And it was a very brief, this was, I was still quite a rank beginner, so it was maybe a 25 minute sitting But because of the yoga stretches and they they involved holding the breath and breath in and out, so forth, stretching the body. When I sat down, I felt incredibly peaceful. I got some peace. My mind wasn't all over the place. I was there, and I suddenly realized, oh, that's what they're talking about. I, I kind of, I. I hoped they were talking about something, but I really hadn't had any kind of experience of it. So that, I no longer... This is something that revealed to me that it was no longer a matter of faith or, or just mad search. It was a direct experience. Like Even a small taste like that is a direct experience. And you realize it is possible to bring the mind into a different, much calmer, more peaceful, untroubled kind of condition. But this, uh, this also produced more um, changes. And uh, again, sometimes when these spiritual changes are handed to you, you're not entirely sure you approve of them. But this is a mysterious, I think, journey. Not only the spiritual journey, but it's just the journey in life is that some deeper part of your mind tends to hand you the marching orders. And the more superficial thinking, discursive part of the mind is not always sure that that's the right thing to be doing. But that deeper mind won't be refused. And if you try to get out of it, there will be no possible reward. You will find that it's not possible to run from that deeper mind, what it decides. The future is being laid out for you somehow. I think, looking back, this brings me close to kind of pre-monkish experiences and uh, I am reminded of a story that stuck with me. I heard it once and it is the way my life has unfolded. And it is a story that two men had heard. Now this is some place long ago, some other place long ago, maybe India. An army had passed by and they knew that in the wake of an army, a lot of things are left behind, spoils and uh, treasures, etc. So they decided to benefit themselves and perhaps the village they were living in by going and following this army and seeing if they could pick up anything behind. And they came to the first village. It was a village that had harvested cotton, and there were several bundles, large bundles of raw cotton. So they thought, what a, what a great find. You know, We'll pick them up. And we'll continue on to the next village. So they staggered along under these heavy burdens of raw cotton. They got to the next village. The next village was a weaver village, and they had woven whole bundles of finished cotton. So the two men looked at this. One of them put down the enormous bundle of raw cotton, picked up a whole bolt of finished cloth and proceeded to carry that. But the second man thought, well, I've carried this bundle of cotton so far. I'm not going to put it down now. I put a lot of sweat into it. So they proceeded on to the third village. And the third village was a village of silversmiths. And there was a lot of silver there. So the man who had picked up the bolt of cloth, set it down, picked up a nice pot of silver. But the first man thought, I've carried this bundle of raw cotton Twice as far now. I can't put it down now. I put so much sweat into it. Finally, they came to the fourth village. The man who had picked up the silver, this was a goldsmith village. He dropped the silver, picked up buckets of golden coins. Again, the first man thought, now I've even carried this farther. I can't put it down now. After that, they proceeded back to their home village. One man... Very, very sweaty, staggering with a large lump of raw cotton. The other man with the buckets of gold. And of course, enough to clothe the entire village in himself. So, I felt that some of the, ma- this, this story is very, you see, when you put in effort and development of self into sort of skills and crafts and so forth, you tend to cling to that. And there's no way that you can move on without dropping that. You can't do both. You can't carry the past and move on to some different future. And if you don't drop it, all you'll have in the end is this kind of very large, crude burden. It'll be worth something. But in order for more refined things, higher values to occur, or stages where This is renunciation has to occur, and the renunciation can occur in all kinds of stages. But renunciation, it's not a pleasant word in English, I think, especially in the West at modern times, certainly at some time it must have been. Renunciation is kind of giving things up, maybe as a kind of a penance, maybe a little painful, but I don't regard it that way. It's an essential Buddhist virtue, and it's part of what we call right intention, the second factor of the Eightfold Path, there are three factors in this right intention. First, the intention, this comes out of realization. This is the second factor. Some sort of realization has occurred, which then shapes your intentions. And those intentions afterwards, the abandonment of anger or hatred, the abandonment of cruelty, the manifestation of hatred through speech and actions. And something called nekama, which we translate as renunciation. But I think a uh, better translation might be desirelessness. Now, that has to be understood well as well. You know, sometimes you think like, oh, depression, you mean. <laughs> <laughs> or anhedonia, this, something, the lack of enjoyment of life. No. Desireless means freedom, actually, the freedom from the weights and burdens, and so this is part of this process, renunciation. For me, each stage of this path has involved putting things down, but you pick something up in its place, and uh, that thing that you pick up in its place should be superior. And some of the things we're staggering along with through our lives, the weights we're staggering under, Really, one should uh, consider whether one should be clinging to this or not, or whether to set it down. And it's the fear, of course, the setting down what will come up in this place. And that, certainly in the stage of my life as a monk, has been there as well. You wonder if there's any possibilities here, exactly what the possibilities will be. I want to jump on to what happened after the Zen temple. I got some training, but in a very urban setting. And I always had a fondness for the idea of... uh, Hermits, hermits. Now you read, this tends to be a romantic sort of structure. You read about Taoist hermits and yogis and Buddhist hermits and hermits, hermits and uh, (laughs) etc. So, I I, um, had this notion and one, and I was still enmeshed in this life. I had some Zen training, formal training and so forth and I recognized some great possibilities. And I happened to have gone to New York City and uh, to one more time just try to find something in the center of the culture. Now I went down, I flew down there from Toronto and you know, I, I would go down there occasionally and I, I went to the opera, I went to the, you know, I used to be married to an opera singer, so I'm immersed in culture, high culture, literature, all of these things in downtown Toronto trying to extract whatever I could out of it, and having great opportunities for this. Because, by the way, sometimes the question, why did you become a monk? People expect me to say, well, uh, my wife died, or I I had this tragedy. I was in a car accident when I was 18, or something terrible happened. Actually, nothing terrible happened. Everything good happened to me. And uh, that has nothing to do with why you become a monk. It's because the... Terrible potential is there for every living being and uh, when we recognize ourselves as we could be anybody there, but for the grace of what? Karma? Go I? Uh, We... uh, You can't help but realize the precariousness of this life and it takes you right out of the play. Again, back to the theme of Immersion in the drama, and then kind of getting your head above it and seeing it as a play for... So anyway, I'm down in New York, and I'm really feeling kind of a surprising lack of interest in all of this stuff, the best that the Western world has to offer. And I'm going here, I'm going to art galleries, I'm going to restaurants, I'm going to Broadway plays, I'm going to operas, it is to this and nothing. I go to the Metropolitan Museum, and there's a bunch of... There's a, some paintings by Van Gogh and stuff. Very, that's nice. But <laughs> still nothing. Finally, we go moving towards the center of the museum. Huge museum and all great artifacts and so forth. And then finally, we get to this room. It's a whole room set aside. It's bigger than this room. We go in there. What's in this room? A little shack. A little shack, and it's it's a Taoist. Hermit shack from the ninth century from China, and Richard Nixon had been given this when he went to China in 1972. I'm, anyway, I'm, I'm, I can just imagine Nixon being given a Taoist hermit shack. He said, Thank you very much. <laughs> Ah, turning to the CIA agents with him, get rid of it, you know. (laughs) Where, what do we do with it? Give it to a museum. Anyway, I walked in there. This is the heart of the heart. So the Big Apple is the heart of the Western world, the Metropolitan Museum is the storehouse of the artifacts of the best production of the Western world. Right in the center of it is something from the East, which is not a... All it is is a shack. Still well preserved, and they'd taken the thing apart and put it back together in a kind of a little setting, just like the natural setting. And I I walked to that. I stood in front of it, and I thought, "My heart is alive again." I haven't found a damn thing in all of New York, and I—I'm right there. I'm trained in this culture. I have done graduate degrees in Western literature and culture, refined all my appetites. So it's not like I'm. I can't appreciate Western culture, I, 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 there's really not much there, of, at any depth, depth. This reminds me of a, a quote by T.S. Eliot, it just came out of the blue, I'll tell you. He said, our literature is a substitute for religion, and so is our religion. <laughs> and that's actually, in my quest, my investigation, through philosophy, arts, uh, literature, cultural endeavors, that's exactly what I found. Everything's just a substitute for something. But what's the something? So, when I stood before the hermit Shack, I i thought I saw the something. It's a very, very... It's so bare, there's no distractions, nothing. And it reminded me of Thoreau talking about why he went to his shack, you know. He said, it was to face my life and to drive it into a corner. And if it proved mean, well, then let me know the depths of it and let me taste my life to its core and its rind. He did, and he was glad he did, and I did. I went on from there. It wasn't too long before I went off to a shack in the Coast Mountains and for several years, a bare shack. And to see what it's like, no distraction, no job, no nothing, to see what it's like and see if, if it turns out, well, that life is poor and mean and it was a great fantasy about being a hermit, well, I'll find out at least. Before I come time to die, I want to know if I've lived. And if I distract myself all the time, I won't know whether I was ever alive, because it'll come to that time, and I'll think I kept dodging the issue. I never was face to face with myself, with nothing between me and existence. So that was a phase, giving up the possibility of distracting yourself with another human being, however warm and complex and rich that can be. There might be something even beyond that, and you have to go there to find out what that guy in the hermit shack was doing. After that, some years there, I became a monk. I mean, I, I, came, I, I really was a monk, but I, I wasn't in the rope, so I proceeded then to travel to the opening of the first forest monastery in North America, it happened to be opening in West Virginia. And part of this journey has been an astonishing number of coincidences and synchronicities. In this remote shack, no no phones, no way of communicating, no real way of looking around. Coincidentally, a uh, a Sri Lankan Buddhist showed up there, <laughs> <laughs> knocked on the door, and I uh, I, I talked to him. And I was very fascinated. Somebody had told him that there was this kind of Buddhist Western Buddhist sort of hermit living up there. So oh, that's fascinating. So he, anyway came over and made my acquaintance, and he turned out to be a very direct connection to a monk who had just come from the opening of the First Forest Monastery in North America, and I got a note pinned on my door because I had no communication that such and such was the way, and so I end up within a very short time on an airplane to West Virginia to that First Forest Monastery where I was ordained as a Buddhist monk just about 20 years ago. And I'm now at the beginning of the topic for tonight. (laughs) I was kind of worried that I didn't have enough material. So uh, I have now arrived at West Virginia. I shall compress this into four minutes. Uh, Because it doesn't matter whether you compress it or expand it. No amount of talking really ever does justice to it. You'll have to do it yourself someday. I trained in North America. It was a wonderful experience. And um, just one little incident, made me go deeper, was an old man uh, near the monastery who uh, was a retired truck driver, and uh, his name was uh, Mr. Dennis. And uh, in West Virginia, ordinary pope just used the initial of the last name, so he became Mr. D, or Daddy D. And uh, he and Mummy D lived up behind the monastery. And they'd never seen anything like Buddhist monks, but they were quite uh, quite friendly hillbillies. And uh, it was a marvelous relationship. Uh, but Mr. D had nothing to do except watch TV and being retired. But he decided he would take the garbage from the monastery to the dump on Sundays. Now, it's just a local dump. This is about in the middle of the boondocks. Blue Ridge Mountains of West Virginia. And I, because he can't lift anything, he can only drive his truck. I, uh, I'm a monk by this time, I load the truck and go to the dump with him and unload the truck. Whenever he rolls up on a Sunday, the dump is open at a certain hour, and we eat at 11. He always comes early, just as I'm about to begin the one meal of the day. (laughs) And no matter how many times I've told him that we eat at this time, and the dump doesn't open till 11.45, And uh, there's no point in sitting in front of the chain in front of the dump (laughs) until it's open. But he doesn't remember things very well. So he keeps forgetting this and showing up early to the dump. And I keep having to interrupt my meal, the one meal. And I rush out there because he lays on the horn. (laughs) And this shriveled old man leans his head out the window every time. And the first time, this really took me by surprise. He says, and this is sort of a thing that truckers say to each other, I guess. He leans out the window, he says, hey, Sona, I want you to know for sure. (laughs) And the first time he did this, like, I've been meditating, I've been, I've I've had very close encounters with Zen masters asking me funny questions too. that reminded me very much of an intense Koan interview with us. Like, who are you? What do you know for sure? (laughs) The first time I just laughed. I just, ha, ha, ha. (laughs) We went to the dump. And of course, it wasn't open yet. We had to sit there and wait. And he always brought the newspaper along, so we read the newspaper, waiting for the dump to open. And then he did it again. And then I thought, I'm going to have to answer this question. (laughs) And then the problem was he's very old and he would occasionally have a heart attack. And uh, an ambulance would go up there and we think that's the end of Miss Daddy D. But uh, he would resurrect and uh, be brought back. And so I thought, well, what do I know for sure? And then I thought, oh, we're going to die. That's right. I forgot. That's so obvious, isn't it? But then I thought I can't tell him that. <laughs> you know, what do you know for sure, so I, Well, we're gonna die. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. I just about did it last night. You know, like I don't want to know about that. So I kept thinking, well, what do I know for sure? I mean, absolute truth. But it's not like you're gonna die. <laughs> I had to think about it, think about it, think. I finally got an answer. So he came early again. Lay on oh, the horn. Missed the meal. Go out there. What do you know for sure? You say, well, we're not getting any younger, are we? <laughs> so he said, that's for sure. <laughs> it was a gentle kind of nudge in the way of mortality and truth and something, but not so. So, you know, I thought about that. The whole thing is very eerie. Like, what is this guy? What is this aged sick man who shows up early uh, even though I've told him not to (laughs) is this not the signs the Buddha saw that drove him from the palace an old man, a sick man, a dead man and then a monk walking into the forest these are the heavenly signs that the Buddha, set the Buddha off in the quest for like what does it mean if you just get old sick and die is there any What do you do? How do you deal with it? He also happened to be Daddy D. Now this D is a huge D. What does it stand for? Is this not Daddy Death? (laughs) Showing up to get me? (laughs) And take me to the dump? (laughs) Also early? (laughs) And asking me? What do you know for sure? This <laughs> is not an unbelievable, you know, as I say, life this life is full of coincidences, but you sometimes you don't recognize them until after you only put this together. Uh, anyway, I've continued to try to answer that, to you know, find out what I know for sure and to understand that, that although I, I left there and went off to Thailand to the forest and so forth. And it's been a great adventure since, but I I I have to always expect, you never know, when I'm going to hear that voice. Hey, son. Why'd oh, you sure? shoot? <laughs> so, uh, yes, I've been a Buddhist monk for 20 years, and I'm very seriously working on that. And I'm always ready, hopefully, to answer when you can ask that question. So I leave that with you tonight, um, because I don't want to uh, bore you. So uh, anyway, I got through chapter one, and you'll have to come to the retreats, future (laughs) retreats, to hear. We only got up to the third year of my monkhood, so um, I will leave this. Uh, But it was a good start. I'll leave this for you tonight. Uh, By the way, anybody have any questions? I invite any questions. uh, Just yeah. Where does Buddha live now? Where does Buddha live now? He he's right here. Um, it's a good question and that you, you all should ask yourself that and that's what I've been asking myself and I will be asking it until one day I can't tell you